Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, crew, check it. Dog events are happening. For exhibitors who are able and willing to attend these events, it feels as if our tribe has been reunited once again. Meanwhile, for folks who are continuing to feel safest staying at home and away from crowds, and for folks who are driving long haul between far-flung events, I gotcha. I've been working hard to bring you all podcast episodes that help you feel connected to our larger community and offer opportunities for education and entertainment, no matter how you have managed through this truly overwhelming year. One of my favorite events this year is the monthly virtual Pure Dog Talk After Dark for patrons of our podcast. Anybody can join this fabulous community of dog enthusiasts by visiting the website and clicking on the Become a Patron link on the homepage. And while you're there zooming around on the site, you might think about checking out our shopping tab too. We've linked dog show vendors from all around the country so you can help support them during this really grueling loss of income suffered due to a lack of events. There's even a swag link that lets you order your Pure Dog Talk t-shirt, sweatshirt, fan case, mask, <laughs> ringside towel, and so much more. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you every day to make sense out of everyday things to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. So check out the links at www.puredogtalk.com. Your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I am super excited. I have an old friend and a new friend joining us today, and we are going to talk about Borzoi, and I am so excited. I can remember being a little kid and seeing a Borzoi for the first time at the dog show, and I was absolutely smitten, and it was my greatest goal in life. I was going to get to show one of those one day. And I did. I did eventually get to. But <laughs> they are, to me, just the epitome of elegance and a breed that I absolutely love. But there's a lot to them, right? So I have Christina Tara and Corrine Miller, and we are going to talk about this fabulous breed. So welcome, ladies. Thank you hey. for having us. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Okay. So part of what we do here is what we like to call the 411. Just a little bit of background about yourselves. And Corrine, I am going to start with you. Okay. Sounds good. I got my first Borzoi in 1982. 
I don't know if you guys remember that book, Carl Berger's All About Dogs. On the mm -hmm. inside, there was a bunch of borzite. I think they were tambour dogs laying on cheetah skins or something similar. And I think that kind of just stuck with me. And so my aunt showed Boston Terriers and I decided I want to have my own show dog. So I researched a bunch of breeds and somehow I came up with Borzai. They're gorgeous. And you've been involved. You do a lot of lure coursing with your dogs or open field racing and that sort of thing, right? Yeah. I love the ASFA lure coursing and I also do some AKC, not as much. I have went open field coursing. I guess the thing that I used to do all the time is called free coursing. We did a lot of that. Right. And my dogs usually are trained at least at some level of obedience. All of them right now have like rally novice, which was really fun. I did the virtual thing. Oh my right. gosh. Is that fun? Yes. Well, and every time I talk to someone who trains sighthounds and obedience, I just feel this overwhelming urge to sort of bow because, no. because that's a lot of work. You have to have very much a passion for it and very much a special mind, I think, to work with sighthounds and obedience. Well, I'm not really sure about that because I've always been around unusual breeds. When I was growing up, I was raised by a standard dachshund. Mm -hmm. So there you go with blockhead. Right. And then my mom got a Pekingese. And so I've never really had a quote unquote easy breed. Right. Borsley are incredibly intelligent. Yes. They learn things very quickly. They had to, or else when they were in the field, they couldn't take directions from people. They had to go and pull the wolf down. So they had to learn very quickly. Right. So they picked things up, but repetition, not so much. Not so much, right? That drilling that we think of with so many obedience dogs, I think is not as welcome. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Christina, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Christina Terra, and we got our first Borzoi in 1993, originally. Both myself and my mom are from St. Petersburg, Russia. So that's the birthplace, you could Seems say, obvious. or close to the birthplace of Warzoi. So it was a natural choice. Yes. Like you say, we've always admired the beauty of the breed. And back when we lived in Russia, I was still a kid. We had something totally different. I started with caribou terriers. My mom started with Airedale terriers. But having a Borza was always a dream. And once we moved to the U.S., once we got up on our feet and had a house with a yard, we got our first Borza. Yes. My old friend, Christina, who I remember now you say that, I met you when I was showing an Irish terrier. And your mom and my Irish terrier client were fast friends and huge admirers of one another's dogs. And that's how I remember you guys. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I think I remember you with that, Terry. Yes, a long time back. All right. So I, again, a breed I admire tremendously and have for many, 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 many years. Talk to us and somebody raise their hand. Who's going to do the history? You've each touched on Okay. <laughs> All right, Christina. <laughs> because I'm old enough to remember when I first started in 4-H and did dog ID, they were still called Russian wolfhounds in the late 70s. So we know that. So let's dig into that a little bit. Yes, I think the Russian wolfhounds, it's a bit of a misnomer, because actually, the breed in its native land used to hunt many things other than wolves, but wolves also. 
So they were initially bred as a typical sighthound that would hunt the European hare, kind of like a jackrabbit here in the United States. They're big, right? Yeah, they're big in the Russian steppes and the big open spaces, but also the forest meadows. So those sighthounds initially had to have a lot of speed on short distances. And I'll tell you that the first depiction of a Russian wolfhound <laughs> or <laughs> Borzoi is actually at the St. Sophia Cathedral in Kiev, Ukraine. It's one of the frescoes. And St. Sophia Cathedral dates back to 1037. So that is one of the first depictions. And also in the illuminated chronicles of a couple of centuries later, there's another beautiful depiction of one of the czars, Vasily, I think the fifth, hunting with Borzit. So that's kind of the second depiction of the breed. So the breed goes back ancient, ages and millennia, and it has changed over the years and different breeds have been added to it. And as the country changed both geographically, you know, the forests were cleared, so more stamina was required of a sighthound, the breed changed. And also, as the country changed politically, for instance, when the serfdom was abolished, when the big aristocratic families of Russia could no longer take care of big kennels, then the breed changed again. Okay. But it has always been the symbol of that country, and just the epitome of an elegant yet powerful creature. Yes, absolutely. That elegant but powerful. And talk a little bit, and again, my history of the breed is this big, and I'm saying non-existent. But it seems like I remember reading about not just one family, but many families of the czars in the royal family. Am I doing this right? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, of course, the royal family is always the one that draws the most attention and just kind of nostalgia and these beautiful tales and palaces. And of course, the Russian czars, they had their own hunt. It was the imperial hunt, and it was in the suburb of St. Petersburg and one of the palaces in a place called Gatchina. But one of the biggest breeders and the most famous kennels of the time was actually the czar's uncle, and that was the Perchina hunt. But that was just the czar's family. There were many noble families across this vast country, and they all considered it their duty to have their own line of beautiful boars. And they all competed against each other in how beautiful their boars were and how fast and agile they were and how many foxes or hare or wolf they could catch. That is fascinating. So I've just been writing an article about the origin of dog shows. And so I always talk about dog shows as a couple of guys with hunting dogs that got together to say which one of my hunting dogs is the prettiest. And they got their brother, the guy with less vodka, to come and say which one was the prettiest. So do you have any kind of a timeline, any kind of a time frame in which they were competing at which one was the prettiest and the fastest and all of that sort of thing? Well, you know, they would have many kind of field trials Mm -hmm. where Different neighboring landowners would get together with their dogs and just compare them. 
But as far as dog shows went, I think that did not start until the late 19th century. Right. And in fact, the very first written description of the breed appeared in an article in a hunting magazine in 1888. And that description was voted on by the Imperial Hunting Society members. And so they all voted on that. And I suppose that could be called the first standard of the breed. Wow. So that's as far as the history. And they did start exhibiting actual dogs back in the late 19th century in Russia. It was in Moscow, St. Petersburg, some other towns in between. Excellent. Very, very cool. Okay. So, Corrine, can you add to that talking about watching the dogs work and taking that description of their historical work and applying it to what we see in modern day? Well, I think it's interesting what Christina said about the families. A lot of them wrote their own standards which was interesting. There was one, I can't remember which one it was, but they were like, oh, the black and tan ones are the best. And then this other guy that lived over the other way is like, oh no, anything with tan markings is bad. That's Saluki blood. And they had oh a good rivalry. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love that. It's one of the things that make our breed really interesting in that there are a lot of types that fall within the realm of correct. Mm. Because of, I think, the vastness of the country and the people breeding their own lines and things. So there's a lot of different head types, a lot of different coat types, and a lot of these fall into, correct, our standard in the United States, for one thing, the coat comes in flat, wavy, or rather curly. And any of those are okay, but that all comes from the history of the breed coming from such a vast amount of bloodlines. Absolutely. And if I may add, it's interesting what went into the breed to start with. Yes, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, because originally it all started with a Saluki type dog that came from the east, the southeast of Russia. And according to several books I read, pre-revolutionary books in Russia, what happened next is that they were mixed with the local Nordic type breed. And so that gave them a pattern in the coat that was different. Also, the ears that would either stand up, but then later folded back to form a rose ear. Later, a deerhound type sighthound was added that came from the west through the Baltic Sea. There was a Hart Polski, which is a Polish sighthound that was added into the Borzoi on at least two different occasions throughout the breed's history. And then back to the Saluki-type dogs. There were a couple of now extinct breeds in Russia that were called Crimean sighthound, looked like a Saluki kind of and a mountain sighthound or Gorskaya sighthound that were also mixed into the breed to give it more stamina. And so all of that results in the breed diversity that we see now, the different coat types, the different colors, the different right. ear sets. Head style. Head yeah, set. ear sets, head style, right? Fascinating. And Corrine, when they're working, when you're taking them out and you're working with them, whether you're coursing or whether you're doing obedience, how do you see 
the history of the breed influencing their working ability? Well, I've coursed with many bloodlines. Some of my own dogs have been diverse bloodlines, but I also have friends that we've coursed with. And I think that there's certain things that we look for, not necessarily things that are good in the show ring or bad. It's just something different. The really tight construction, like tight skin and high ear set and slender bone with a lot of muscle, that really makes a good dog a sturdy dog. One of the worst things, besides having a long, saggy back, (laughs) and you might not believe this, and Christina can agree with me, there are some Borzo in the ring with long sway backs, and some of them actually do well. The loose tendons and things are bad, but one thing that will kill your dog in the field is a flat foot. Mm -hmm. So I always make sure to look away from that. As far as temperament, I want something that's up on their toes, that's looking for things. My dogs get excited if they see a leaf, if they see a squirrel, if they see a napkin blow across the ring, the whip around, you know, you want that alert kind of personality. It saddens me in a way that the American show ring and maybe other countries too, we kind of go for a generic type of personality, you know, rock solid, kind of dumb, pays attention to a piece of meat. That's really not a borzoi. They shouldn't be shown like a Doberman. They should be shown like a sighthound. And I really like that high up on the toes thing. And as far as obedience goes, I don't expect them to follow me perfectly. I expect them to obey sometimes. There's not something more important like a cat or a squirrel. And a lot of people don't understand that either. We get a lot of people, Christina's probably had them too. It's like, I want a borzoi that goes out with my chickens and my goats. I'm like, you know, No, you don't want a borzoi. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, crew. Looking to enhance your breeding program? Spring into action with Embark's all-inclusive DNA testing for breeders. One Embark for Breeders kit provides breed-relevant genetic health tests, physical traits, and genetic COI test results for each of your dogs. Embark's test results are accepted by the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals for all conditions where OFA has an established DNA registry. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to help manage their breeding program. From improving genetic health and diversity to screening for disease mutations, understanding traits, and a lot more. To save on better health, visit EmbarkVet.com. And use code PUREDOGTALK to enjoy $20 off each kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGTALK. That's a perfect segue because I always ask this when I'm talking to people. Who makes a great Borzoi owner and who would you recommend might want to consider a different breed? How's that? Well, for me, I knew a girl that had Collies and Dobermans, and she loved the look of Borzoi, but they were terrible for her. And she ended up getting rid of her Borzoi every time because she expected them to go off leash with her to parades and to obey every single thing she said. And she would just be miserable with those dogs. If you can't accept the fact that they're hunting dogs, that they're always looking around and that they're independent, not the breed for you. Excellent. Christina, what's your thought on that? I heard someone describe a Borza as something in between a horse and a cat. And 
Oops. It does describe them somewhat <laughs> accurately. But, you know, I think the perfect Borza owner has to have a sense of humor, patience, and appreciation for the beauty. And, you know, just not expect their dog to obey and really have a fenced yard. But then I think that's yes. for any breed, quite frankly. Yes. So, yes. And talk to me a little bit more, too, because I think sometimes, and this was a learning experience for me when I first started showing the breed, I just saw them as beautiful. And come to find out, there's a little sharp that goes with Borzoi in some instances. So can we speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable thing to expect from a dog that could hunt wolves. I mean, there's a lot of, here we go with temperament things. There's a lot that fall into the realm of correct, but our standard calls for courage. Mm -hmm. So those mincy, scared borzoi that you see that shy away from the judge, that's not correct. They don't have to love the judge, but they do have to stand there. And yes, there can be sharp dogs. Some males are just not super friendly with other males. Mm-hmm. Sharp on people is something different. Those should be put down. They're too big and too dangerous to be mean to people. Christina? Yes. Well, I think a Borzoi is a dog that A, is an independent hunter and B, has a very quick reaction. And so you have to keep that in mind. And at the same time, it's a breed that is often very easy to live with without doing much training. And people that don't do much training are doing themselves and others a disservice. Because I think every Borzo needs to know manners, needs to know some basic mm-hmm. obedience. And it's important to teach them that, even though sometimes it seems like you don't need to, because it's a dog that just is very mellow, sits on the couch, doesn't pull the lead, doesn't bark, doesn't bother you, goes on a walk next to you with a loose leash. But you have to also make them understand who is the boss and just to have good manners. Leadership. Leadership is an important thing, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. With other dogs, also, you have to, you know, socialize. Mm-hmm. And I think it's true for most sighthounds. You have to really put extra time and effort into socializing a sighthound puppy. And the same goes for Borza. And Borza is a large sighthound. So, you know, even more important because of that. Yeah. A lot of dog with very quick reflexes, I think, is what I would really emphasize and to understand that. And that if you don't have good boundaries and good leadership, that there can, it might not end well. True. They're very smart. So, they're willing to take, right. tra- you know. They'll train you. They'll train no you. No problems. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about, I mean, this is a large sighthound breed, but I think my understanding, and again, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, relatively healthy, one that is for its size, reasonably long-lived. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that for the size they are, 10 to 12 years is pretty typical. Mm-hmm. They can go past that. I've had one that was almost 15. Mm-hmm. I know Christina's dogs are long-lived. There are some lines that you have to be careful, just like any place, there's some heart problems. Anytime you get to a dog this size, you're going to find some heart problems, I think. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hit and miss, but there are some lines that have more. There's some bloat, 
anything of this right, size with right. mm-hmm. yeah. Eye problems, not so much. There are a few. I'm not convinced most of them are hereditary, although we do do all the screening. Mm-hmm. I think that they're fairly rugged. I know there's some bone cancers. I got to knock on wood. I have not had any of the bone cancer. And anytime you get to a dog, I read this somewhere in a veterinary magazine, anytime you get a dog that's 10 years old and up, 50% of them die of cancer. That's just, you know, it's like people, it's endemic in the society now. My dogs usually eat whatever dog food and scraps and their skin is beautiful. Their coats are beautiful. So pretty easy keepers. I think so. A lot of people have picky dogs. Mm. Because they've trained them that way. My dogs are not picky. They their dogs picky. have trained their owners beautifully. Yes. yes. We have picky dogs. I have. <laughs> they, they, they trained us. Really, I've met you. Yes. <laughs> they trained us really well. But I wanted to say yes. that actually, I think the National Club, the Boards of Club of America has done really well. And the fact that they require a lot of health testing. And people actually do it. So if you look at the OFA website, you will see that the National Club requires, at this point, an ultrasound of the heart, so an echocardiogram, eye test, thyroid test, and a degenerative myelopathy test. And people actually do it. So most people in the U.S., if you breed a litter, it's kind of expected of you that both parents will be health tested and listed on the OFA website. So I think the Borza community is doing a lot to ensure that the breed continues to stay healthy and continues to thrive for hopefully millennia to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And so we talked a little bit of the living with them, you know, that they're generally just sort of, they lay on the couch and they're really adorable, (laughs) but that's not all of it. When they're puppies, they can be quite active and also very destructive, some of them. Yes. Again, that boundaries, Christina. And I think all of them need a couple of really good romps, preferably in a big yard every day. Mm -hmm. And the puppies need free exercise as much as they want. So basically, you know, we leave our puppies out in the yard if the weather is nice all day long and just bring them in to sleep. That ensures proper development because as any large breed, if they don't get that exercise, then they grow up too narrow, unsound, because they don't have the exercise. They all of a sudden can have these bursts of exercise and are prone to injury during those. So I think it's very important that they just continuously stay active when they're little and when they're older yeah they need a couple of big gallops a day yeah right. but other than right. that correct just rugs <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's kind of the nice thing about them they'll come up when i come home and look at me and i'll pet them and they'll go lay down they're not on me all the time some dogs are so needy like maybe some herding breeds that have to be pushing your hand and have to be laying on you the boars they aren't. I like that independence. Yet when I've got the leash, we're ready to go. Right. And so for people who want to, you know, say, yes, I like the independence. I like that dog that's not going to smother me all the time. And I want to do something fun with it. So there's lure coursing. You talked about some of the rally and trick dog and some of those things. What other types of activities? We just barely touched on open field coursing. 
I'm not entirely sure the legality of it anymore in a lot of the U.S. Yeah, you've got to have a hunting license here in Idaho. One of you in the field. So you could have 30 people as long as one of you has a hunting license. Okay. The problem is the rabbits have disappeared from Idaho, as far as I know, in the southern part. It used to be I could walk out into any sagebrush field and kick up a couple jackrabbits. But even the official places where we've had the coursing, which out in Grandview, I went out there about a month ago and I didn't see one rabbit. Hmm. And jackrabbits, they're not in places like Louisiana. Right. So it's really tough and you can't really hunt wolves. No. No matter what you might think. No, the federal game wardens frown on that pretty strongly. <laughs> yeah. And I think that now, you know, we talk about our dogs could hunt wolves, but until we tested them, we really don't know. And it took a lot of training back in the day. They would like capture, these people were crazy. They would jump off their horses and they would grab a wolf and take it back to the kennel. And they would train the puppies with this thing. I mean, I can't even imagine. But, and I know. think it was more of a spectator sport, the wolf hunting part of it, you know, later. Oh, so it wasn't really the main game that they used Borzoi on. So it was more of a big production, you know, with the horses oh. and the scent hounds in the woods that would drive the game out. And then all these gentlemen with their Borzoi. They hunted in Svoras, which is a brace of three. Okay. And it's two males and one female. You know, and the female is okay. the lead. And they would release them when they saw something. And, you know, so it was more of a production. It wasn't really right. subsistence hunting. Right, right, right. We weren't eating the wolves. We were just like you would think of in England fox hunting. I think so. Where it was mostly the chase more than the capture. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Okay, that's really interesting too. Okay, so about the only thing we haven't touched on, we have a couple minutes, grooming. I mean, we have long flowy hair, but it's not a coat that seems to me, at least when I was showing them, did not seem particularly difficult to manage. It's not. I think it's easy to manage if the coat is right, because the standards call for silky generally. And so, you know, that's what you want. And the dirt just falls off. And it's really easy to brush. It doesn't mat. But it is a dog that sheds a lot. A lot. <laughs> okay, so this is a really important thing, listeners. If you're contemplating a Borzoi, you need to buy an extra Roomba, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> they can, they can take it. You know, it. <laughs> quite frankly, I think you would just be sweeping yourself <laughs> and brushing your dog lots and lots and lots. If you ever hear from somebody, oh, they don't shed that much. Mm, oh, that's my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's kind of a little bit all the time and maybe like a lot twice a year. Absolutely. <laughs> Interesting. That is, I mean, I guess I never had a Borzoi live in. I just did a lot of ringside pickup. I didn't think about the shedding part. Very good to know. Scratch that. <laughs> <laughs> They're so beautiful over there. They're absolutely gorgeous. You know, for me, I love wearing black. And a lot of my dogs Mm -hmm. have a lot of white on them. And yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I'm not covered in white right now, but usually I am. You have special rollers, right? Yes. (laughs) Laura, she gave me her black dog, so I don't want to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know, there's one thing I forgot to mention, we kind of, again, brushed over it. I want to go back to it and pay attention to it. 
borzoi with small critters oh, in the house. Sometimes they're good. Small dogs, small cats, gerbils. Depends on the dog. <laughs> depends on the dog. Depends on the training. Probably not gerbils yeah, ever, I- Laura. <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> that's a safe bet. No. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah. Guinea pigs. No. <laughs> okay. All right, so I'm saying if you're interested in a borzoi and you're good with the shedding, we say no to small critters. Yes and no. I mean, it really depends on the dog. And even in a litter, there's different temperaments, but I've got pigeons. Important to work with your breeder and say this is the type of, wouldn't you suggest? Yes, but there's so much more to it. I mean, the dog has to be socialized to that thing and some might be cat safe in the house with their cats but if the cat goes in the yard they might chase and kill the cat some so you know i've had my dogs retrieve my pigeons and hand them to me my boars like believe it or not other ones are just like oh man i've got some waiting out there for the pigeon to fly over the fence so they can eat him yeah. so if you can't accept that i don't think you should accept the boars like yes there are some that can live with chickens very few right I just can't believe people want to do that. (laughs) Right. That seems like an awful lot of effort. Christina, what's your thought on that? (laughs) Besides no guinea pigs. I think uh, (laughs) it would be very difficult logistically to manage small critters and borzoi. As far as cats in the house, I mean, I hear that uh, a lot of people have cats and borzoi. We don't. But small dogs and borzoi. I mean, I think definitely fine if they are brought up together. I have a lot of people that have small dogs with boars. They just do fine. I think it's actually probably a very good thing to have a small dog if you have especially several boars so that you just kind of socialize them to a small breed and teach them to live with them. I've got fox terriers with mine. I don't know if fox terriers are really small dogs, though. Fox terriers can stand up for themselves. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I, too much. <laughs> yeah, that vision is sort of giving me the whim-whams right there. Wow. Oh, no. <laughs> I think it's just how you train them, how you raise them, and they do just yeah. fine. But I think Borzoi basically was raised just with other Borzoi, with large breeds. You should not expect it to automatically do fine with small breeds. You should be careful there we go. in introductions. There we go. That's what I was looking for. All right, ladies, thank you so much. I could sit and talk Borzoi forever. I am sure that you guys are going to do me a huge favor and send me some photographs of yourselves and your dogs. And we will include those in the blog post. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, guys. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.